Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a good day. A good day. This is my second day in Montreal. I'm very excited. My voice is raspy because you're in this bar in the Hyatt. It's insanity. Okay, there's hundreds and hundreds of people from comedy, the industry, and you're hanging around with some of the biggest stars in the world. Like last night, I was at a show with Blake Griffin. I'm on a FaceTime with my son, and he calls my son's name, and he turns the phone around. He's doing a FaceTime with my son, and he's the happiest kid in the world, and I'm happy, and I think to myself, this guy's really accessible, but it's probably just here in this green room. And then you go down the Hyatt, and he's hanging out with everybody, and there's no security. This is the biggest basketball star in the world, or one of them. He's hanging out, and people are having a great time. And it's wonderful. And I had an incredible time yesterday. Got to interview a guy who I've known my whole career, Kevin Hart. And I was so honored that he decided that he would be interviewed by me. So that was great. Also, I want to thank you all so much for all you do and for just your support. It's just been incredible, the response. I can't even begin to tell you how humbling it is when you do something that you believe in and you try to do it in your spare time and try to do everything you can to get it going. And it happens and people come up to you and they say that they like it and they say that it's helped them. That's all you can ask for. And especially sitting across from Barry Crimmins, because that's all he wants to do is help people. And I hope that I can have maybe a fraction of the impact. So here we go. I look at Barry Crimmins, and I'll tell you what I think. This is a really interesting thing to actually sit across from a man 
who I probably haven't seen in 25 years. And so it's hard to look at somebody when you haven't seen them in a long time and there's so many memories go through your mind. So I want to share something with you as a young person in Boston coming from Longmeadow, Massachusetts, which was a white town in Western Massachusetts with only two African-American people that I knew and coming to Boston and to a multicultural city. And I was very sheltered in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And believe it or not, I'm being honest with everybody here. I didn't know what it was like to have somebody who was angry at me. I didn't know what it was like to have a gay person in my life. I didn't know what it was like to hang out with a black person, an Asian person, a Latino person. I never saw a drug. I never saw marijuana. I never saw cocaine. I never saw anything. I know that's crazy, but I was very sheltered and that's the way it was. And one of the places I went was a place called Constant Comedy at the Ding Ho. And that club was an amazing place that Barry Crimmins came down from Skinny Atlas, New York and built into one of the greatest comedy club venues of my generation. Now today, everybody, if you were to walk into a club that was like the Ding Ho and you were walk in and say, hey, we're doing comedy here, you would have gotten in your car and walked out. It wasn't a venue that you would think would be great for comedy. The bar was in the room. It was a Chinese restaurant. There was a dishwashing area in the back that was loud. Sometimes televisions were on silently with the Celtics game or the Bruins game on. Sometimes on a night when Barry wasn't there and maybe he didn't have all the control, you'd be in the middle of your routine and you hear this amazing, amazing response in the middle of a routine. You'd be like, wow, I never knew that was so funny or that got such a great response. And you realize that Bobby Orr just scored or Larry Bird just scored the winning basket. But the fact is, is that this was a place where Stephen Wright Lenny Clark, Paula Poundstone, Jack Gallagher, who you may not know, who's one of the greatest yeah. comedians of all time, Martin Olson, who works in a lot of television shows, was the piano player. And there was this mix of amazing comedy that was there. And when I went there, it was one of the first times that I realized what life was going to be because the Ding Ho was a mixture of everything. There was Shun Lee who owned the place, oh, yeah. who was an Asian man who barely spoke English. I got that my fill. There were, believe it or not, even in Inman Square, Cambridge, there were African-American people and comedians that yeah. came in and you were like, wow, I'm mixing with this group of people. There were all sorts of different people. But the thing that I noticed more than anything else is that there was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of cocaine there was a lot of marijuana barry crimmins hated cocaine thank you <laughs> but that didn't mean that he could control the people in his place and i used to go to the show on wednesdays that lenny clark used to host it was an open mic and then i would get to go on the open micers would sometimes go on in between these great comedians like steve yeah. sweeney don gavin and people would just pop in and it was an amazing time in my life and one of the things that I never really understood is Barry was the first person in my life that I ever met who was always angry, rarely smiled, always dressed presidential, always had a blazer on and a tie, 
always was clean shaven, but with a huge, huge Fu Manchu mustache. <laughs> and he always seemed to look at me in a way that I felt like this guy really feels horribly towards me. As I became an entrepreneur, I felt it even more because I was booking a lot of different people and I would rarely book Barry because I felt like the audiences that I was catering to when I was booking these college shows hated me. were looking for these young people to do a kind of entertainment that Barry wasn't doing. And so I never felt like this kindred spirit with Barry. And I always felt like, and one time I remember he took me aside. No. He said that I was doing a disservice to him and comedy by supporting that kind of comedy. It really affected me. When he said that, then I thought to myself, I got to really understand this political comedy. I got to really look at it more closely. And I would spend time and go see him and hide in the back of the room at Stitches and just watch him. And I gained an enormous appreciation for him and his work and political comedy. And so all these years, I never understood what was going on. I understand sometimes why people, I don't feel like they have this connection with me. And I know in business, there's always going to be people that dislike you or things that happen. Technically, in my mind, I didn't think that Barry disliked me, but I thought there was something going on, but I didn't know what was going on instinctually. And then I heard about a film that was coming out called Call Me Lucky with a guy who was a roommate of mine when I was in Boston, Bobcat Goldthwait. And... I didn't know what to expect when I watched the film. And the first half of the film, it's just a love letter to Barry Crimmins about how he was angry, but how he took care of these people and then in Boston, how he was supportive and how it didn't matter if somebody was a different kind of comedian like Stephen Wright, who worked there all the time, or Lenny Clark or DJ Hazard, who did guitar comedy or Don Gavin, who used fast words and wordplay, or people who used the F word as some kind of a noun or adjective. He didn't care because he liked all kinds of comedy, and he knew there was nobody like him. And Barry was able to mix with these people. So here I am watching, and I'm like, why, this is incredible. This is wonderful. What a great film. I understand this film. And then the turn happens halfway through where we find out that Barry was molested and raped as a young child in his own home by the mother's boyfriend over and over again. And the second half of the film has to do with that and Barry's advocacy against the crimes that happen to children through the internet at the time AOL and all the interviews with all the comedians and how much he meant to them and still means to them. And when I saw Barry for the first time last night, I saw a different man. I hung out with a different man. I hung out with a man who was full of love and full of support and a man who it appears has come full circle and after I watched this film, which I highly, highly recommend that you stop this podcast now and you go on iTunes and get Call Me Lucky. This is an amazing, amazing journey, a film that's incredible, free on Netflix. 
and the work that Bob Goldthwait did and the work that Barry Crimmins did made me realize why Barry was so angry, why he was so upset, why he not only chain-smoked but chain-beer drank. It made me realize the pain that this guy was in and the self-medication necessary to deal with something so horrible in his life and how he has fought so hard to change what's happening in the world. And because of him, I would say hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of children are safer in this world. And so if there's any lesson that I have today, it's the fact that in business and your personal life, you're going to deal with a lot of demons. You're going to deal with a lot of bad things that happen. I'm not saying that you have the horrible kinds of things that happen to bury in your life. But there's going to be people in your life that die that are close to you. People are going to get sick. There's going to be tragedies that happen that you can't believe have happened to your family. You're going to say to yourself, he was so young, she was so young, why? Or there's divorce and you're a kid and a teenager and you wonder what happened. Obviously, there's going to be these horrible things that happen in everybody's life and people don't tell you about it. When you grow up, your parents don't say, this is the way it's going to be. Right. You're going to have great times and you're going to have bad times and you're going to learn how to do it. But the fact is, as I see Barry and I saw him perform last night, amazing, and I saw this film, which was extraordinary, I saw a person who was able to figure out a way to fight through the demons and get through it. And instead of being in a situation where he held all this horrible stuff inside, he figured out a way to channel it and use it for good and not evil. And the fact is, is that I think in business and your personal life, if you can figure out in any situation that's bad or negative at work or in your personal life, how to figure out how to navigate around it and address the problem, fight as hard as you can to address the problem, even though you don't want to because of whatever you're feeling, whether it be embarrassment or you're feeling like ashamed or whatever it is. If you can fight through it and open up and get to it, you're going to be successful in your personal life, much more successful. You're going to help more people. You're going to inspire more people. And you're going to have the kind of life and career that Barry Crimmins has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you're all still awake, then we're going to try to put you to sleep now by giving you a little introduction for Barry Crimmins, which is long and exciting for me. All right. Barry Crimmins is a former Air America radio writer and correspondent, social justice activist, internationally renowned political satirist, and author of the acclaimed Seven Stories press book, Never Shake Hands with a War Criminal. He helped bring the Boston comedy scene into the modern age when he founded two of Boston's most fabled clubs, the Dingho and Stitches. 
such acts as Stephen Wright, Paula Poundstone, Bob Cad Goldthwaite, Kevin Meany, Jimmy Tingle, and many, many others cut their comedic teeth in the rooms Crimin started and at shows he produced. As the years went on, he became an activist of sorts, traveling to Nicaragua to perform political satire about the U.S. government and the Contras. The brilliant, multi-talented Crimmins is also an actor known for Call Me Lucky, which launched in 2015, which again, you got to get the Young Comedians All-Star Reunion in 1986, and when Stand Up stood out in 2003. In the early 90s at the Comedy Club Stitches, after a long and scathing speech about American culture and politics, a clearly tortured criminal suddenly shifted topics. A newspaper report said he said that he'd always identified with victims and he'd recently begun to understand why. As a kid, a sweet, happy kid, by all accounts, he had been raped by a man who knew his babysitter. He said this guy would come over, he would take me down in the basement and rape me. It was violent and it happened a number of times. Later, Crimmins decided to move to Cleveland and in seeking support groups and fellow survivors online, he inadvertently discovered that there were chat rooms for pedophiles on AOL, a great many of them categorized extensively. In those days, the internet was widely unregulated. When Crimmins tried to alert AOL, he found the company to be unresponsive. Then he contacted the police in 1995 and Crimmins testified about child pornography in Congress, using his superior rhetorical skills against AOL's Director of Government Affairs in front of an audience that included the late Strom Thurmond and Russ Feingold. The hearings led to the heightened awareness and zero-tolerance policy for pedophiles on AOL, an incredible impact for Crimmins. The political district that Crimmins contacted has since made more than a thousand indictments related to internet child pornography. I just want you to know, everybody, for the first time in my podcast life, I have chills and goosebumps. Crimmins' satirical writing and comedy routines have focused through the years on the need for political and social change. Crimmins received the Peace Leadership Award in 1991 from Boston Mobilization for Survival. The award was presented by, of all people, Noam Chomsky. Additionally, he was honored by community work with the Artist for Social Change Award for his years of activism. In 1994, Howard Zinn presented Crimmins along with Maya Angelou. The Courage of Conscious Award from Wellesley College and the Life Experience School at the Peace Abbey in Sherborne, Massachusetts. Barry's friend Howard Zinn did the presenting that day. His work as an activist, journalist, and performer has taken Crimmins everywhere from American campaign trail to war zones in Central America, to Camp Casey on the perimeter of the George W. Bush compound. Furthermore, Crimmins is the author of Never Shake Hands with a War Criminal, a collection of essays for Seven Stories Press. He was a contributing essayist for the Boston Phoenix for over 20 years. Barry's work as both a comic and activist with special emphasis on his efforts on behalf of child abuse victims and survivors is unprecedented. His film, Call Me Lucky, debuted at the Sundance Film Festival and has been critically acclaimed throughout the country. In June of this year, Barry Crimmin shot a special in Lawrence, Kansas for Louis C.K.'s Pig Newton Productions. 
Crimmins has toured with Jackson Brown, Stephen Wright, Billy Bragg, Dar Williams, Utah Phillips, Warren Zevon, to name a few. Sellout crowds have enthusiastically welcomed the insightful and hilarious political satirist who has rewarded his fans with his trademark biting yet loving wit. Barry Crimmins is a true American comedy legend who never rests on his laurels, instead building each performance on a lifetime of remarkable experiences and a comic mind that has made him into the one-of-a-kind comic you really do need to see. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. It's an honor, Barry Crimmins. Well, thank you. Let me fix my hair. <laughs> thank you. It's great to be here, old friend. Wasn't that a time we came up in? I kind of knew we were doing something, but there was a guy named Ian Stewart. He used to play uh, the keyboards for a band called the Rolling Stones. And, but he was old and frumpy. He was like a jazz guy, you know, old, old frumpy looking guy with like a crumpled up suit on. And, and he just, he didn't, he didn't look hip enough to be in the room. So he still played on the albums and stuff. And, and they would bring him out in the concert later, just sort of slink him in there. But still like whoever they are marketing, people were like, we can't have any. And he ended up uh, engineering exile on mainstream. And stuff. Well, anyway, he was in Boston uh, at Fort Apache Studios, uh, putting together in Cambridge, putting together George Thurgood. I think it was like the big George Thurgood album. And he, he, so he used to hang out at the In Square Men's Bar, ladies invited, you know, a famous rock club. And that's where I would go hide from the ding ho. I can tell people now, but I, that's where I would go just like loom. And they, you know, so anyway, I walk in one day, I say, fuck. Ian Stewart's sitting there. I go, hey, it's hey. like, shh. Like, oh, man, sorry, I forgot. It's probably a pain in the ass to be in the revival with the Rolling Stones. So I invite him over to the thing, and he starts coming over. Ian Stewart, yeah. And he goes, just don't tell anybody what I'm doing. And I go, yeah. And it's like, and of course, he couldn't pay for a drink. Almost. That was the hardest thing to do in the world was pay for a drink and thing home. So um, Ian, Ian, then he comes over and about the fourth, he never really says anything to me. But the, then after about the fourth time, he says to me, I haven't been a part or seen anything like this since like 64, 65 in London. This much talent exploding at one. So at that point, I really clamped my memory down like i'm gonna pay attention and so i you know and i felt so fortunate because i i would have just floated through it like a dumb you know dumb kid like you all are and you should be because you're young well what year did you come down from skinny atlas new york 79 and why of all the towns in the country oh, well, this, do you decide to go to boston and why of all places do you decide to go to a chinese restaurant in inman square cambridge to open a comedy club okay well i went to boston because it was raining i was hitchhiking my father's in a va hospital in west virginia it seemed like he might die but then i went down and hung out and he would and he was well, he was gonna, you know, he wasn't, he lasted a long time after. You hitchhiked to Boston. I was hitchhiking to Boston from West Virginia. How much money did you have in your pocket? Maybe $4. $4. Yeah, maybe. And you have a, like a backpack. Yeah. And you no, have no job. Nothing. 
I, w- I was going to go to New York. So you're just essentially just camping everywhere you go. Basically, yeah. That's uh, that's what I used, homelessness used to be called camping. <laughs> How do you eat? Where do you get the money to eat? Uh, well, I I was I worked at like labor pool in Boston. I would get up at yeah, I mean I would get I would you know at three a.m. You're mustering, and I would go in and I would pack fish all day or the potato chip factory once and and i and and then i got i would get hired to do crap that you couldn't get sailors to do who are legally obliged to do what the navy tells them but they would give it to me and then these you know and these people from labor pool got you know half the money i made but uh, so that was a company labor pool, so they pay you, let's say, seven dollars an hour, oh, and you yeah. make three fifty, and they right. make three fifty. Right, right, right. But anyway, I'm coming to Boston. No, I'm come. I'm I'm just going to go to New York. I think from yeah, I'm going to hitchhike to New York after the right after the Goldthwaite and up at home in Skinny Alice. Uh, Let me preface this for everybody. Skinny Atlas, New York, was a place that founded three comedians that I know: Tom Kenny who was called Tom Cat in the early years. And Tom, most famous thing you would know him for right now, if you have kids, is he's the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. Bob Goldthwaite, who obviously is a tremendous director, a tremendous performer, innovative performer, came from up there. He was Bob Cat. And the reason why they took on the cat at the end of their name is because Barry Crimmins, of all people who you would think would never have a nickname, when he was in Skidinapolis and he tried a comedy and tried starting some comedy nights and then rallied around and hosted some nights, he called himself as a nickname Bearcat. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't. That was my... We're watching the movie The Alamo when we're playing high school football and... and and Wayne says of Richard Widmark, who's playing Jim Bowie, he's meaner than a little bear cat. And a couple of my, I was doomed at that because I was considered not mean, but you know, I was within the rules of the game in those days. You could really harm people, <laughs> so I did. Um, and that's it. Uh, but I was known as Bear Cat. But I never once in my life said, "Hi, I'm Bear Cat," to anyone. But but there was an ad in, when we put the ad in to see if anybody else wanted to do some comedy because my pal Stephen Leahy was leaving to go back to college. Um, I, I I asked, you know, in the in the Syracuse, put them to put an ad in the Syracuse New Times. Well, there was a chef named Barry at the restaurant, and so they had to, they decided. Well, we put Bearcat on there. So Goldthwaite and Kenny saw Bearcat and were like a me, like Bearcat. <laughs> what kind of a jerk calls himself and and then it took forever. It was like, you know, twenty-eight years later, I go, Goldthwaite, I knew you were dumping on me when you were doing it. I knew it, I knew it. And he's going, No, and he lied forever for like twenty something years. And then one night I broke him. We're in Syracuse and he's driving and he's like I had him laughing so hard he with the cars for me. So I'm like, All right. So I'm hitchhiking. Yeah. It's raining like hell, and I want to get. I want to go to New York, but I'm like the guys are like, well, I'm swooping around New York because I'm going to Boston. I'll take you to Boston. I go. Screw it. Boston's in the American League. Fate is such an amazing I'm thing. Amazing. You're hitchhiking, and back then, for those of you who are a little younger listening, 
Hitchhiking was very common. I would hitchhike all over the place until one day a man put his hand on my leg and I said, I am never hitchhiking again. Yeah. And I got out of the car and that was it. I would walk or ride a bicycle. But back then you would hitchhike at night and the fate of knowing that that guy who drove by at that moment was going to Boston, that changed your whole life forever. Yes. And maybe a couple other people's too. Doesn't that blow you away? Yeah, yeah. I got hit by lightning. Random what guy. if the guy just didn't stop? What if he didn't see? Yeah, you? I know. I know. You know what that means? Camden, New Jersey would have a tremendous comedy scene today. <laughs> <laughs> but also, this is what blows me away. And permission to speak freely. Yeah, please. You're a guy who experienced one of the most horrible things in the world. Yeah. Where you were in your own home, which is supposed to be safe. Right. And that happens to you. Right. And then 15 years later, you willingly get in somebody's truck and hitchhike. What are you doing? First up, anything that happens to a little kid, they just think it's part of the deal, you know, or whatever. You just kind of like, really? And no one talks about it. Okay. I don't talk. No one, you know, it's just, it, it was just this traumatic thing that happened to me that I didn't. You know, I was so young, four, and by that point, honest to God, I had I had hitchhiked a lot, and I had a couple of creeps along the way, and I made it clear, I will fucking kill you if you. And I and I said that uh, I'm hitchhiking down to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, when I was in high school still, and some guy picks picks me up and like, oh, you know, guys, so you play sports? Well, you like to be in the showers of guy, and I just like listen, how much further are you going? And I made, I'm, I was that much of a heart. I go like, no, I'm going as far as you're going. But you, if you fucking come near me, I will choke you to death. And what kind of ride do you have with a guy who picks you up, gives you a ride, and you say to the guy giving you the ride, I will fucking kill you? You got to go through things, not around. So I went through what happened to me as a kid when I had a chance. But I was so young, I didn't have a chance then. And then I just... You know, I lost my childhood very too. I was in, uh, I was, it was like, the, you know, I had PTSD. I was anesthesia. I was, or, you know, I mean, I was numb. And so, uh, so when I figured out what the deal was, then I really worked through things. And you learn a bunch of stuff from that. Like, you know, first off, you learn not to take life so personally. It's not completely based around you. You're just in it, you know? So I felt very lucky when I figured that part out because a lot of stuff, they people get kind of, sh you know, the shoots they put you in as, as an abuse survivor uh, are meant to like, well, I don't know if it's meant to do this, but but they really make people feel like if the whole world doesn't come up to you and apologize to you for what happened to you, then... You're still being tormented and you're good at being tormented, aren't you? <laughs> you know, and I don't, you know, and I was tired of being good at being tormented. So, uh, I don't want, so, you know, you, you have to provide that understanding and compassion to yourself, but understand why everybody else doesn't because everybody else has been through crap. You don't know anything about you know, uh, or, or you could only guess, 
but you know they're not but they're dealing with their own pain and their own crap and so you, you know taking t- planning to take it personally is just a complete waste of time it's just a complete waste of time you got to take care of yourself and find a few people that will hear what you have to say when i start telling people what happened to me as a kid they, they you know a lot of people were great and some people went are you talking to anyone yeah i thought i was talking to you Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey, everybody, I just want to take a minute to talk about this great new service that I've been using called HelloFresh. It's a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy it in 30 minutes or less. And if you're like me, that's what you need. First, they let me choose a date that worked best for me and my schedule. And I was able to choose what I like from three different plans, classic, veggie, or family. And like me, you can feel confident because it's so easy with their simple recipes that are outlined on pictured step-by-step instruction cards. I got all the ingredients to come in a pre-measured recyclable insulated package in the mail. So all I had to do was take it out, cook it, and enjoy it. I cooked it myself. And I was very, very happy because it was easy and fast. They have a wide variety of Master Chef curated recipes that change weekly, and I highly recommend the beef ragu spaghetti and lobster ravioli and shrimp. My kids loved it. And if you need to cook something really quickly and healthy for the whole family, this is definitely the way to go. You can enjoy $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. Just visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code CATS30, that's K-A-T-Z-3-0, and stop worrying about time-consuming meal planning grocery shopping and start feeling confident like I do, cooking again while saving money, relieving stress, and eating healthy. Okay, so you're in Boston doing these shitty jobs. You gave up oh, yeah. comedy. Are you actively looking for a comedy? Oh place? no, I was, I was, uh, I was in Boston to do comedy. A guy who does research on everything decides he's going through Boston. Doesn't hitchhike from Boston to New York. Boston didn't have a comedy scene, so there was nothing. So a guy who does all this research wants to start and do comedy, and he knows in New York there's eight comedy clubs probably in 79 or four of them or whatever, but he decides to go to Boston where there's nothing. Why? 
there was a torrential rainstorm and i could have gotten out I'm gonna, I'm gonna arrive in new york now and i got four bucks on me and i'm gonna arrive in new york completely that, that's logistically speaking <laughs> that's a big issue like now everything's soaked so whenever anybody meets me i'm gonna have like mildew on me so i go he's going to boston they go fine and and as far as this planning everything, I, you know, I, I mean, when I'm a kid, people ask me, oh, I wanted a comedy. I said I had to spend several years of being a, I had to turn several years of being a screw up into research. <laughs> so, um, so you're in Boston, you're soaked, you have four dollars, you're doing these shitty right. jobs. Yeah. What's next? I, it's a Memorial Day weekend, and and I I go and I look at the paper. They're doing a comedy show at a place called the Springfield Street Saloon. So I go over and I bluff my way on stage, have a great set. How many times had you been on stage in your life at that point? Oh, maybe, a, maybe I'm sure at least a hundred, you know, um, I, I mean, I started in the early seventies, but it was the main thing in those days was finding anywhere you could ever do it. So getting a chance to develop was the hard, now, like, you know, there's a, they're opening up the borders of Syria to open micers. Anyway, I kill. And the people who run that show, they had another show down in the theater district. Um, uh, they say to me, I go, this is great. Yeah. But Boston, you know, but they, they say out of nowhere, Boston will never be a weekend at comedy town. And I just said, really? <laughs> That's what you, in my head, I'm already, and I'm not Mr. Business or anything. I'm immediately going like, That's what you think. You know how good these people are? Because, you know, I go, and Gavin Sweeney, Clark, and they're, you know, the, just a big line, <coughs> Bill Campbell and Dan Slankton. What happens next? I keep going back to the thing, oh, because I knew the room was great. The Springfield Street Saloon, which became the thing. Oh, yeah. So I would go back. So anyway, Shun Lee hires me to be the bouncer because they still had a lot of music book there, but they weren't doing that well with it. So when do you have the conversation with Shun Lee about comedy? And I want you to tell me what your original deal was. Shun says to me, you want book all? You handle entertainment here. I go, sure. You deal with it. I don't want to talk to him. And I explained to him that night. Look, comedy is coming. People like it. You know, Saturday Night Live, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, it's something different. You know, it's this new, it's going to really be a big deal. And he goes, I don't, and generally it's like, not even pay. He just goes, you get people here, you know, uh, that's great. And, and I was supposed to get half the club. You know, that was my deal. Um, half of the door and the bar or just half of the door? No. Half of whatever it eventually was worth. I was supposed to be the partner. Did you ever sign but, a contract? No, of course not. And no, and by the way, by the way, you know, like, I, and from the start, I wanted to pay the comics. I wanted to take care of people because I just felt like, you know, having been around the country, they just put you through this ordeal before they put you on stage. It's ordeal, and they make you feel like shit and, and really under judgment. But, and Barry, when you're charging, like, Wednesday nights with Lenny Clark, you're charging a $3 cover yeah. charge. 
Okay, the place if it held 125 people, it was a miracle. It it it, it held 143, okay. and then when you 140, we got to over 200. Okay, in there a few days. let's pretend you got 200 in there. Yeah. That's six hundred dollars. Right. Okay. Not a lot of money to pay I the paid comedian. Low, but but you know, I think originally for it started lying. I think it was seventy five. We would just pay people if we didn't make the money, but we almost immediately made the money. We almost immediately covered, you know, what the guarantees. And then when and then when we did better than that, I just split the money up among everyone, and I. You know, and I felt I was making an investment in my own future. <laughs> so what you're saying is out of 100% pie on a certain night, let's just pretend, okay, right. there's $1,000 at the end of the week. Right. Uh, let's just pretend there is okay. for one of your first weeks when it started uh, okay. going. Out of that $1,000, how much did you make? How much did Shun make? And how much did the comedians make? Shun made the booze and the food. I, uh, the comics got the door. I know, but out of the thousand dollars, so Shun gets zero. What does Barry Crimmins get for being the zero. person who's running it? And what do the comedians zero. get? Zero. Comedians got their, their pay guaranteed by Shun, but basically he was doing well. I mean, he was doing well. He didn't no, have I, anyone in there. I know he was doing well, but I'm getting that. But I'm just saying, how was the money broken down? Like, how did you but make I a didn't living? Have a, we didn't make deals in those days. It was just like, wow, we get to keep doing this? Yay. But you're running and booking it. You don't pay yourself a salary for that out of the money I that comes didn't. in? I didn't. I never did. Well, how do you, where do you live? Uh, no, because I, I would, well, that was one thing. I would every month. I, you know, I had a room in somebody's apartment and it was a hundred and fifty bucks a month, something. And I would, you know, and I would say, Sean, I every month that's what I got. So that's what I got. I got the price of that. But other than that, uh and then I would if I wanted to go eat at the S and S or something, I would take ten bucks out of it. So, you know, that was that and that but that was it. Nothing else. But I would go do other shows so i know that but you started the ding host did you start full-time as soon as shun said as soon as shun said uh we're doing you know uh well so i immediately so i go to the comedy connection that's something i tell you i go to the comedy connection and i go we're gonna do full-time comedy at the thing and and they're uh they go like and you guys are there you can you can be it all the time i offered them i offered them the club out of honor because they that's why i found the club so it reverts to them but so the owners of the comedy connection at the time were paul barkley and bill downs right and so you went to them you said i'm opening in cambridge full time yeah i'll give you guys the opportunity to come in right. and run it so so the night we're supposed to start the night They've got a show. They're they're scheduled. This is one of their sporadic shows at, at the old Springfield and then the thing. The, uh, and so it's a great show. The place is jammed. I've taken out a globe ad. At the end of the night, they go up on stage and say, Well, it's their last show here. We're going to Tommy Mars. Which by the way was like a horrid room. Good. Good luck to you. The, the thing was just it was physical, and after we got it going, it was really 
physically it was great as a comedy room because you know all those rooms were like a rectangular and they put it at the far end of the rectangle like no put it in the middle of the you know so the thing was was great that way but anyway those guys didn't uh you know the, the same guys in boston will never be a weekend comedy town uh but they really did screw me that night you know because i'm i heard it we are not coming back to the thing. I went. I was like, but but two minutes after they screwed me, I went, oh, this is tremendous. I get to run this, this myself. I don't have to be, you know. I tr I did the right thing, and you know, and and then they openly fucked me. <laughs> so so you know, okay, you're on the record. Thank you, and I like those guys, you know. But really, but you know, you know who you are, and you openly fucked. <laughs> right away we went from wednesday to sunday and i uh so wednesday Tell me the first show of your regime well, so lenny was hosting yeah, yeah. who else was on oh my god everybody came in because it was like wow they're doing a an open the stage time if you're ever on at the connection you're on here and so they all show up so you got Steve Sweeney, you got Lenny Clark, yeah, you got Gavin. Don Gavin, yeah. DJ Hanard at the time, yeah. who turned into Hazard. Yeah. You got Martin Olson at the piano. Yeah, playing the piano. You got yeah. Stephen Wright there? Uh, he Not yet. Okay, you got Jack Gallagher on? Absolutely. Okay, who else do you have? Campbell Paula was there, Mike oh. Donovan. So I want you to tell me about the opening night and the excitement about it, and then I want you to tell me the night where you went home before you laid your head to rest that night, you said to yourself, holy shit, it's on and I'm never going back. This yeah. place is massively successful and I never have to worry about it not being successful again. Well, yeah. I, the thing is you had to worry about it being successful. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it was, you know, I've always been good at making money for other people and horrible for doing it for myself. And I'm such a, I'm an empath, you know, I'm a tuning fork for agony. Anybody who's in trouble, <laughs> anyone who's in trouble, I help out, you know? And so I, you know, like what I made, I would end up, I mean, there are people who are millionaires today whose rent I paid in the eighties and it would be kind of like, maybe you could, you know, and that, no, I don't want to, you know, I'll, I'll say this much. It sure wasn't Stephen Wright. But anyway, uh, those days, I wouldn't really think in terms of, it was so fluid. There was just so much happening that the idea that I would go, oh, we're good now was like, I was so overwhelmed and I'm not a business guy like you. I don't have your kind of genius for taking care of that stuff. I just like, I, so I'm just like bluffing. I'm like way too much attention to some details and totally like, let it go. Let's just take the first week that every single show yeah. sells out. Yeah. You're not thinking to yourself, Hey, we did it. No, <laughs> but I don't even remember when that happened, but it did happen. You know, we were jammed. 
people were lined up around the corner with their, you know, this is before every plastic, they, they like literally, I would look outside and I would see these people with money in their hands just holding it like i think it's this much they're guessing the amount and it's all word of mouth there's no radio ads well, there's we, no we had the, we were on wcas in cambridge with the constant comedy radio show uh oh, we all a, know that reached a lot of people oh yeah it was just it, but it was a really but you want to talk about target marketing it was you know i mean it was an am radio station that played the dead you know like so these so there was a certain element of hipsters of that vintage that came in to the club and it eventually and what eventually ruined everything was the goddamn cocaine that's what really wrecked things in boston is the cocaine it was people uh well they just they they didn't they stopped be, being reliable except for you could be guaranteed they were doing cocaine you know I, and uh i was never you know, I'm not old hippie, afraid of, uh, I'll walk right through the medicine cabinet with you and tell you everything, probably from personal experience. But I, uh, cocaine is, my friend Tim Walko said, it's like, I don't like to stay up late and uh, complain about my little league coach. And that was basically what it was to me. It was just, and, and someone else said it was the, it was the drug for people who hated hippies. <clears throat> and I think that was true, too. Um, and people didn't realize it was a hippie running the thing. Oh, it was an old, you know, I mean, it was. As my friend Billy Brank says, if I have to become a millionaire promoting socialism, I'm willing to pay that price. <laughs> and, so when was the first time at the ding ho that you saw somebody using cocaine what was the circumstance who well, was well you know i mean i probably it wasn't like a, oh my god because it wasn't i'd been around enough drugs but i was like wow i just not, I, I probably what happened was i went well wow, a lot of people are doing cocaine and then you know i did a line or two and first off and then i, I then i did the, yeah, i don't know if you remember the spit i used to go like, you people better be careful because one of these days they're going to start putting cocaine in the cocaine you know, you know and, and they did and that's when it really got bad because like you guys think you're getting high wait till you actually you know and and then like once in a while the real cocaine would come through and i would i could tell just by like you know i could the temperature of the room would go up two degrees see all these guys are sort of coming from straight jobs and going into comedy and to me that was the straightest job i ever <laughs> And so I was like, being, I'm becoming more responsible. So we passed, and the, the ships passed the night very quickly, and they now they're all doing coke. And I used to say, you guys want to get high, I'll get, get some acid, you know, see if we're looking for the dealer at midnight. You know, like, see how much, you know, like, you want to get high? Uh, this shit will get you high. But it's not like, you know, and back in those days, you know, we paid in cash and midnight the coke you pay paying cash at quarter 12 and at midnight the dealer's there tell me one story at the ding ho something happened involving cocaine that just blew you away and it's like you realized holy shit we're in trouble here well that's why i left the ding ho i get in a cab i'm down playing the connection on a weekend night I'm going back to the ding cab driver goes I go, I'm going to a place called Ding Ho. Oh, I know Ding Ho. Okay. She's like, what are you going over there for? 
going over to score some coke. And I'm working 100 hours a week, literally. You know, I'm there. See, all the footage you see of me in that movie and shit, it's all, that's all taken at 2 o'clock in the morning. But no one's there at 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning with me booking shows, doing what's, you know, hustling, you know, uh, promotion. Uh, so, I mean, I was there all the time and working really hard. And then for them, for them to, you know, for it to just become this cocaine, for it to be called that. So I go over the thing and there's, and, you know, and these people, they're doing so much coke. After this cab driver goes, you scoring coke? What are you going there for? And I just went, that's, we're more known for coke than comedy. I was, this one over and, and I'm kind of boiling. And then I go over, I lean on the cigarette machine. I used to have those in those days. I lean on it. And look down. There's two lines of cocaine there. That they've been doing so much coke that someone forgot to snort it. <laughs> you know, so that, that I walked in the kitchen. I said, "Shut up! I am done here. I am done. I will, I will make arrangements for who takes over for me." And the person that took over for me, you, you know, used to deal a little coke. And I said, "I give you this job if you stop." dealing coke and the guy that took over for him was killed I, I it's my nature to want to take care of people and know they're okay and when they were doing that crap they weren't okay you know so i was just very upset about it all the time i left i was pissed and then i went back like 20 minutes after i left i go and by the way the saturday the saturday show's mine because <laughs> i never gave myself a show there i go like okay now i get a sh yeah yeah by the way that saturday show's mine the last time I was there, we sold off four shows on a Saturday night, complete dead stone sellouts. And I come in Monday to get my my stuff. And, uh, you know, the same day you got the sign, I never knew about that. And I came in Monday, and there's plywood over the door. You saw the plywood. The plywood's over there. It's like plywood. <laughs> You know, like I sold out four shows. So like, how are we? Well, Shun Lee had gambled away the uh, the uh, tax money, so yeah. And playing mahjong. Oh no, dominoes, Lana Dennett. Did you ever see Shun again? No. And I looked for him. He just evaporated. Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over a hundred chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site 
And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. All right, so I'd like to go way, 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 way back okay. now. Okay, so I want to know what your family was like in Skinny Atlas, okay. New York, okay. your mom, your dad, your okay. brothers and sisters, what uh, life was like for you, uh, okay. and take me back to your childhood, uh, uh, and then... Go through it as much as you can that you feel comfortable with. And sure. then let us know what was the first inspiration in your life after you go through that story of Interesting. That's a good question. what brought you to wanting to be in this business. I was born in uh, Kingston, New York. My parents lived in Saugerties at the time. But when I was very young, we moved to Skinny Atlas, New York. Then my father, through the... VA or whatever you know, uh, he got a a loan. They bought a tract home in North Syracuse in this place called Bellwood, and 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 uh, and so we lived there till I was about five, and then I came back. Just to, I, I went to kindergarten. It maybe it was six. We moved back to Scales, but I went to kindergarten in that town. But my. That was where, uh, so anyway, I had three sisters, and uh, my father traveled. So my, I am, two of my sisters are twins, uh, and they're four years older than me, and then my younger sister's five years younger than me. So my, my father traveled, and so I was just in this house, a bunch of, females and you know i think it maybe has something to do with me being kind of a feminist but I'll, I'll, but on the other hand there are it's when you're the only boy it's just sort of like i don't could everyone stop talking for a little while please so um i but i would just sort of and by that point i had the, the babysitter's father had been coming over when I was very young and, and and it raped me and I had you know there was this thing where like my parents noticed as best they could by saying like well you were always so happy and whatever and then you just got kind of solemn. So you're four your sisters are how old? Seven. So there was twin sisters mm -hmm. got it. Your mom would go out or work and she'd hire a yeah, babysitter. Yeah they would go out. Who was the babysitter? This this young girl now I realize, but I mean, when you say young, fifteen, eighteen, yeah, twenty-two. I, no, I think twelve or thirteen. So a thirteen-year-old girl was babysitting right. a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. Yeah, she would come over. She would really kind of groom me, you know, like get me. And then this guy would. How show would she up have the wherewithal at thirteen to groom you? Because she, I'm sure she'd already been abused. That's why I have nothing against her. It was her or me. I think that's how she felt. And I. And this was her stepfather. I believe you know, or yeah, the the male 
figure in the house. So you understand now that you think that it was a setup and she was bringing him over and she knew exactly what was happening. I, the babysitter was definitely, in a, I mean, when I put it all together, she's in a, she, she because, well, I also know because my sister at seven or eight, wherever she was, uh, uh, when my sister happened upon uh, me getting raped, the babysitter was right there and swooped her up and, you know, basically threatened her and, and tried to threaten her into silence, but Mary Jo still tried to talk. So how did your seven-year-old sister and you at four yeah. get it to stop? She just said something, and it was like, in my, and it was like, sort of like, well, I don't, and then she just said, they're being mean. They hurt Barry. That's what she said. She's a little kid. So, and uh, um, at that point, and then then the, then the babysitter lied and said, Mary Jo was just such a handful. I never say this, but, you know, like once they knew she had, they, they like character assassinated my sister and, and my parents just kind of go, well, we're not using this babysitter anymore. We gotta find something. This is not working out, you know. But they won't, you know, they could have been more assertive on our behalf. They could have asked more questions. But it's 1958 or whatever, so uh, that was it. When but, your dad passed away, he never knew. He did. He did know. When did you tell him? When I, you know, in the 90s, when I first wrote about it, it the, I, I thought it was very important. You carried this inside you all the time. You so never even like, talked well, to your sister like, about like, it who yeah, saw it. Yeah, yeah well, that's who eventually talked to me. But I, I, the, you know, it was like, it's like walking around with this radioactive anvil at the core of your body. And then what gets hard is when you divest yourself of it, the wind, you feel like the wind's whistling through you because you're just so used to carrying around this weight that belonged to someone else. It was that horrible person's problem it wasn't me so when that so the trick was to learn how to fill in that hole that the wind was whistling through and so you filled the pain with stand-up but i also filled it by just having a good childhood because i realized i missed a lot of stuff because i was numb so i would pick up the paper and go hey you know Ron Guidry's pitching today for the Yankees at one o'clock. I would go get on the Eastern shuttle and fly down to New York and go to, the, you know, I had to go up and go like buy the best ticket you could. And in those days, like it was uh, seventeen fifty. Is that okay? Yeah, I'm seven rows behind home plate, you know. And then I was just treating myself like a little kid, you know, just going like, "Do you want a hat? You can have a hat if you want. Yeah, if you see anything else, let me know." You know. And I like got a bunch of paraphernalia on. I was just an idiot, but I'm a little kid, you know. That's basically. So I went back and had my childhood, and that's how I filled the hole. And you know, mostly I, I, you know, hey, you want to read that book? Order it. You know? And so the first time you came out, and anybody knew what happened to you, yeah. take us through okay. the day that you know in your mind you're going to say something somehow, some way, wherever it is. And then take us through the night okay. when it happened. And then what happened, what kind of outpouring you had from your peers. Yeah. So I was writing uh, the Smiller show. And uh, 
you were writer on the Dennis yeah, Miller show. Yeah. And, but, but, you know, at Channel 5, and, and there was like, like a, across from us was Hunks, which was like, quite frankly, a bunch of gay guys being sold to American women as the ideal that they should strive for. And they're outside my window going like, I, and they're just doing central casting gay t- guy talk. You know, you're like, I mean, it's, it's horrible for the women, I think, but it's it's hilarious on a million other levels. And they're and and I would go out and hang around with those guys and talk. You know, they're good guys. So and then um, we we're right below supermarket sweep, and all I can remember is it would be people walking by with like styrofoam meat and you know like and and. One day, I just look out my window and someone's walking by with four pack of toilet paper, like you know, rendition of it, but it's way bigger than that. You know. And it says it's dramatic on it. <laughs> I just like, why do they have dramatic toilet paper? It's like you got to be kidding me! I got to get out. And this is right when I started dealing with the, what happened to me as a kid. So, and, and, so then, the Rodney King verdict comes down. And the town blows up, and everybody's dumping on these kids who are rioting and stuff. And I'm and I'm thinking, man, you know, shit happens to kids. You know, <laughs> people made some judgments about me, and I was just, you know, I was doing so well to even get to the point where they could make a judgment. I was just yeah. so. Anyway, I go back to I and now I it's just too much. I can't have you know be sitting next to supermarket sweep and hunks and writing the Miller. So I just take I leave. I take an abs leave of absence from the Dennis Miller show and I and I go home and uh, and I'm pretty upset about this. So, so I decide to do a benefit for the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is just a great organization that's done great work against you know white supremacists and blah blah and so rodney king thing happened i thought you know so i so we do this show and i have everybody in towns on this show. And, and 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 that day that was when i really the day we're planning to do the show uh, or we're doing the show i was just uh i just knew i'm gonna say something but I didn't know if I was going to say much. But why did you know? Because I wanted to say, I wanted to talk about all these people not understanding these kids. I was hearing a lot of stuff on the news and like, what's happened to kids today? I don't know. I know what happened to me as a kid. And, the, and these kids, I can now I can see the economic crimes. I can see the circumstances they're. I mean, you know, I can see the, you know, the, you know what they're deprived. So I. I and in the meantime, living in the middle, but up on the hill, there's people driving by on their Bentleys, you know. So I, uh, so I just did that. So I, anyway, and it's sort of a free form rap. So that's what got me to it. And it, but it's funny, I do the rap. I mean, it just comes out. But although Sweeney is, I got to close the show. And I go, Steve, I don't think you want to close the show. <laughs> No, 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 I want to close. It's fine. I've gone on after you before I go, yeah, okay. It's, you know, I mean, at that point, it was like, sorry, Steve, I don't have the time. I do not have it right now to be the producer thinking in terms of you do not want to go on after me. Like, I tried to tell you that's it, but I'm, I'm done, you know. 
fine, go on after me. Yeah, but you started doing your act, though. Well, I was doing my act all night. I was hosting the show. But then towards the end, I just got up and, you know, uh, and just went through a sort of a lin- litany of what I thought the problem was. And then and then I said, and we don't relate to people, you know. And I think it's the first time I ever said there's sanity at the source, which means people have behaved in a, what seems to be a crazy fashion. If you get some context from you go like, oh, wow, what was crazy a minute ago is now ingenious. So there's sanity at the source, you know. So I, I think it's the first time I ever said that. And and I just said what happened to me as a kid. I said I got raped a bunch of times. And and uh, they, uh, you know, it was... Uh, everyone describes the audience. I don't really remember it. <laughs> Well, but they just like get up, so like take the air out of the room and send it to Pluto. And so you introduce Steve Sweeney. What happens? Let's, let's see. You're, you're the globe rusher. Sweeney. Sweeney goes up and he's just going, Jesus Christ! I ah, well, huh. and then he starts trying to do you know characters. <laughs> He's just stopping, going once again, going right back to Jesus. I can't. I didn't know he was. And he's Sweeney's doing all the hand, you know. So it's 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 tremendous. And I mean, he's my dear friend, and it's hit him, you know. Now he's got to go on. And I tried to warn him, but he was sort of like pulling Sweeney rank, like I will, I'll do it, but I'll be last. So I was like, okay. I have a personal question to ask you. Okay, well, let's thank God we're both here. Are you an alcoholic? Uh, I don't think so. I Mark Twain said, when the others drink, I like to help. But I'm left on my own. I'm, there's nobody around. I'm like, you know, drinking water or whatever. When I knew you, there was never a time I saw you without a beer in your hand or within a foot of you. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I'll I'll phone in my coordinates, but generally, like like here, up here, everybody's drinking, so it's like fine, I'm drinking. So like when everybody sees me, I'm having a drink, but generally, I'm alone. But what I'm saying is, when I knew you, you only had well, a beer in your I, hand, and it was self medication. Believe me, I mean, I was running hot. That was like steam. You so know? what's the longest? period of time that you've ever gone in your life without drinking an alcoholic beverage uh well not counting the beginning of it uh i i you know probably maybe uh, maybe like a 15 months once but it wasn't like i'm not drinking it was just like i wasn't drinking no purpose to it just you know my girlfriend at the time was in the you know aa and uh, Did you ever go I, to meetings? No, no. I went. I went to some Al Anon stuff for some friends of mine because I, like, once they put me on the cover of uh, of Codependence Quarterly, <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I, uh, I felt like I needed, you know, to, to kind of learn about some stuff. My friend John Brown, who once puked in a wishing well, uh, really. <laughs> Uh, was a uh, big inspiration for me on that front. You really honestly, not one moment in your life, in your entire life, have you ever said to yourself, no, maybe I, I have a problem. Well, of course. Of course. But, you know, 
then the hangover ends and you don't get and I mean I just it's it's when the others drink I like to help period that's it you know and so if you see me somewhere the others are drinking I'm drinking but generally I'm not and and you know I mean and more and more if I do my shows I like every everything I drink all night they see me drink on stage I have like two-thirds of a beer while I'm on stage and then I don't even want it I just want to go back and you know not talk to anybody for the next as long as possible <clears throat> I, you know, lately I've taken to saying to people who want to interview me, I'll answer any of your questions so long as they don't pertain to me because I'm <laughs> so sick of my, you know, like, oh, what else do I think? What time do you put your shoes on, Barry? Well, by the way, can I just stop for a minute and congratulate you on everything you've done? Because I think, you know, people presume because of what I've done that I dislike successful people because <laughs> I'm such a failure but you it's like you 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 getting that club first off you have no idea how much pressure you took off of, of me by creating all the stage time you did you know oh uh, uh you know over over on, uh, in Boston and it was I mean it was great so I mean, and you know, stage time is the lifeblood of comedy, and so you did. And then you went to New York, and did, and you know, and I've watched. Uh, I'm almost being Jerry Lewis, like where I'm presuming everyone knows exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> so I'm not saying I'm just blurting the things. Uh, uh by the way, I of course uh, know Jerry, and he's been wonderful to me. I'm a member of the Friars Club now, by the way. Really? They needed some young blood. So, <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, it was very nice. Um, but you, man, you had an idea. You went and did it. And then, you know, and I mean, you know, there's a lot of whiny comics out there. You know, to me, it was just like, well, go do what you want to do. You know, go hustle something, you know. Uh, like uh, I've gotten in trouble before because they go like, well, it's you know they might not want my my act might not be appropriate for their show, but let them know that their show might not be appropriate for my act. That doesn't do a lot of good commercially, but it's still you know I pay, so anyway I paid the toll for saying that and it's fine. No, but, but I appreciate you saying that about me. I always wanted to create stage time for did. people, and it was very important you, for me. And, and 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 you know and so these people like, but again. People just make the wrong judgments. Like I appreciate, like people think, oh, I'm this. Oh, he's made a fortune doing this. It. Like, well, good, you know, excellent. Encourage somebody else to create some stage time and hustle some stuff. You know, yeah, go ahead. So I, you know, people people are shocked at how you know. You know how I get this from a lot. I love. Stephen Wright so much because he never got so big that he wouldn't be enthusiastic about something worthy of being enthusiastic about. I have to comment on something. I want to ask you about this quote. This is a great quote. Crimmins says there are only a couple of things that he wants to accomplish <laughs> in his life before they put me, quote, in a little tile in the grand mosaic of life, unquote. 
And then he said, those two things are, I'd like to overthrow the government of the United States, and I'd like to close the Catholic Church. Could you comment on that? Well, you know, we just you just got to set goals. <laughs> Incremental things you can, you know. Uh, I, when I say, I mean, I don't mean violent overthrow because I'm a, I'm a pacifist. Uh, and so I wouldn't want anyone killed. Just I want them embarrassed out of power. <laughs> hey, everybody. As you know, you've heard me speak on this podcast of the importance of clean drinking water. But just if not more important is breathing clean air. The air inside our homes can be up to 100 times more polluted than the air outside. It's a fact. Dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses circulate throughout your home as we speak. Plus, out gases from your furniture, walls, floors, not to mention ozone, radon, and other chemical contaminants. It's potentially toxic soup in your home, and no ordinary air purifier costing less than $1,000 or more can get rid of all those indoor pollutants until now. And that's why I'm so excited about the Air Doctor. It removes all of these contaminants and more. This product normally retails for $600. That's right. Look on Amazon. You'll see it's $600. But for you listening today, you're going to get $300 off and be able to take it home for $299 plus shipping. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and enter the promo code Barry at checkout. You save $300, and it's one of the smartest and most affordable ways to protect the health of your kids yourselves, and your family. AirDoctorPro.com, promo code Barry. All right, six degrees of separation. <laughs> I'm right. going to mention the name of somebody. Okay. And you tell me what comes to mind. Okay. Mark Marin. Uh, good guy. Um, should win an Emmy this year for his performance on his show. That That was really uh breathtakingly good and written by you know and everyone who worked on it, my buddy bob nickman's on there the whole thing was just amazing so that's what i think of Mary. david cross uh you know just uh legitimately miserable but you know never with me just incredibly dear and kind to me all the time but you know like but he just has he just has not suffered bullshit at all and that and and then like if you keep it up there's going to be a sketch <laughs> and you're going to get it or it's going to be in his stand-up and you're going to get it and uh, i went to see him in uh durham north carolina this year I had a night off and uh, i went to see him and he just it was like we're hitting on the same subjects with different jokes, but it was good to see someone else saying like, okay, here's the bullshit we have to go. Here's the next. And, you know, there he was. Uh, so he's he's tremendous. Rosie O'Donnell. Uh, I know she performed early, early at the, on. At yeah, the yeah, a long time ago. Um, she, you know, she was... Uh, I remember her from... Uh, when she was on VH1 and they had me on something and I talked to her and I kind of, and I don't think she would remember this, but I just said, 
male dominated. Everybody's an idiot, <laughs> you know. And she was like afraid. I think to go along, like I was a spy or a setup or something. But then years later, I heard she saw the movie, and you know we have a similar background. And I got this lovely message from her, and she took this amazing picture from the movie with this other reflection in it. It was just amazing, and sent it to me. Uh, you'd have to see it. Um, but uh, yeah, I love Rosie. Bonnie Raitt. Just super talented, uh, uh, really kind to me. Um, uh, but, you know, sort of always overrun when I was around because she's doing a show. Um, but, uh, you know, part of that uh, no nukes, you know, mafia and and always uh, there for a cause with uh, uh, the guacamole fund uh which Tom Campbell uh, runs, uh, but it's a great. Uh, they they kind of know how to step in between where you need them, artists and in good causes, and put it together. And Bonnie's been a huge supporter of the Guacamole Fund. Margaret Cho. Ah, uh, yeah, she's my my dear, my dear. Uh, she uh, is so kind as to say that when she saw me work with Billy Bragg years and years ago, that it opened up her mind. That like, wow, you can say what you think, you know. And and so, and then I didn't hear that forever. Uh, and then she contacts me when the social media comes along and goes, you know, and she tells me the story. And I go, my God. And we've been just close friends. And she's just, and she's also... You know, you know, picked up the, you know, the torch Robin carried for all those years in the Bay Area, uh, with helping people. You know, Stephen Wright. Uh, <laughs> no one will ever get the best show ever is just me and him hanging around together, because uh, we just kill each other, just kill each other. It's like, and it's like. I haven't seen him for four years, and then we hang, you know, in like nine seconds, it's like the, we remember the last thing that was, you know. So uh, just the best, the funniest, the smartest, the most integrity, generous and kind and and incredibly humble. And here's the thing about him. He, and I was alluded to this earlier, he is still... He never got too successful to be enthusiastic about stuff. You know, he would, I mean, he'll go, oh, that was amazing. I mean, he really enjoys everything, you know, in a cool way, you know. Even enjoys not enjoying stuff sometimes, but enjoys, like, can you believe that? We're getting to do this. And, and like, yeah, Stephen, you've been a huge star for 35 years now, you know, but he's still got that, Enthusiasm and that's that 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 comes from this brilliant humility. Like, like, because I mean, can imagine how much you could think of yourself if you were him. How smart he is, you know. Uh, so that's that's Jackson Brown. Oh man, I he he once said, "Thanks for making me look like a moderate," <laughs> which is good. Um, but. Uh, uh, I'm listening to him 
and you know driving up to northern new england and doing gigs and people are staring at me and i'm telling them about death squads in central america and then i would put jackson brown on and the way home i go i bet if jackson heard me well goldthwaite they wanted goldthwaite to do some shows with jackson he couldn't do them so he said check this guy out jackson brown's people check me out and i ended up so within months of like I bet if Jackson Brown heard me like, and then I'm on tour with him. So it was really like, you know, it was, it was a Hollywood movie sort of like, Oh, I sure does love me some Jackson Brown. And then like cut to, to, you know, 20 minutes into the movie. It's like, Hey, Jackson Brown's going, where's Barry? I, you know, like, so I was so fortunate and he's just such a, uh, just a wonderful person, you know, who, who actually, as great as you think he is, and when you get to know him, when you're in the back room with him, he's even better. Like, like there's all sorts of people, you know, pretty good at being in public, but it's like, you know, he like plays down what a good guy he is when he's in public. Just, he's just the best. And what a talent. You know, imagine writing a song at 16 that's, you know, now all these, you know, uh, these days. He wrote that when he was 16. 16 years old, you know, just a genius. Dennis Leary. Uh, what a great actor, really good actor. And, and, and what a good guy for taking care of all those uh, people from Boston. And I hear you say that, and I know Dennis was a guy who was maligned by a lot of the Boston comedy scene and then you see a guy doing so much great things for Boston and the firefighters. Wow. How do you feel about that? How do you change your philosophy of things? I didn't have to change my philosophy at all. A lot of people came to me with some complaints and I passed them along and then say just someone and they get very successful and then you see the same people hanging around. With, but you were the guy they had you know, and I, I mean, I conveyed some things in my day, but I wasn't, and, you know, I got tagged a little too, but I, I, I don't care, you know, like, when it comes to uh, plagiarism, I just, I learned years ago, about 25 years ago, I just said, you know what, I'm going to write stuff I want people to repeat. <laughs> you know, if you repeat this, fine so it's just a matter of filleting it down to the point where if you want that joke you have to have this point with it. you know so i don't care paula poundstar oh just uh you know she was an early you know a pioneer women should everyone but women comics all her debt and every comic does but uh back in those days I, you know, I think the reason there's so many more women comics these days is because of Title IX, because they get to grow up and play sports teams, and there's more camaraderie. And even if they aren't part of that, they run into other girls who are in school, you know, and, and it, there's a lot of this just sort of that jocularity that guys get to have, you know. So that there wasn't that. Well, like I, I used to tell when I played football in high school, I would tell the cheerleaders, God, you should get some kind of team. Do something. I can't hear you. By the way, I can't hear you. You're out there. It's noisy out there. I don't hear anything like, and we don't know that. So, um, Paulo was a courageous uh, trailblazer. 
Last name, Bobcat Goldthwaite. Uh, well, thank God I was nice to that kid. Um, no one works harder than him. He is always working. When Robin died, everybody, thank God, he, Bob was so close to it, he didn't have to see a lot of that crap. Everyone's theorizing and whatever. And, you know, then the when the report comes out from the coroner, it refutes a lot of what a lot of people presumed. You know, I mean, he... He died from a, he he had a disease that hijacked his brain, and then they probably gave the wrong medication to him for that. And all these people, you know, it was a chance to be on. When they called me up to talk about it, I just said, "I have one thing to say." And soft the record, no comment. And they're like, "Don't you want to be?" It's like, no, Ronald Williams doesn't need me saying he was a cool guy at this moment. It's not like, oh, thank God, because this is the age we live in. You know, like, well, well, uh, David Bowie's family's got to be pretty bummed out. But now that Larry thirty eight thirty eight with nine followers from Indianapolis has sent out his thoughts and prayers, that's probably going to turn it all around. Like everybody's issuing statements these days. They're like. Look, Seriously, like, oh no, my thoughts and prayers go out to the book. No, you, you no, you, you, your grandstand play is being seen by me, and they are not pouring over Twitter waiting for Larry thirty eight thirty eight's remarks of a. So, so anyway, Goldthwaite. But I knew that he had a lot of work to do on the movie, and I and I felt like that would really. Uh, it's the one thing that really made me feel good was. He will get back to this. And he got off that deck, and, you know, it, it was in three or four weeks, and he starts working on the movie again. And he gets it done in time to be at Sundance. I mean, we started in February. Robin dies in August. Now Sundance. So, and I mean, and we were, I mean, it's really sad, you know, sad for me. Robin was going to come around to the, Best with us and stuff. And that was, I mean, you know, he was so much fun to hang around. So, uh, but Bob just poured himself in the work and, and, uh, put that film together. And I mean, you know, false modesty aside, is anyway, it's, it, it, it's a beautiful movie. He did an amazing, amazing job. And, you know, and uh, you know, like people give him a hard time, they say, they say, uh, why'd you make Barry go in the basement where I was raped as a kid? And it was the last thing he's going like, I don't want you to go down. And I'm going like, I'm not going to let that place have that kind of power. I'm going in there, you know. And I want to take the onus off the place for any kid who might wander in there, you know. So, so uh, and gold, it's, and you know, and so we're at uh, the Brooklyn Academy of Music and. Someone really kind of grills him. Why did you make Barry go into the basement? And Bob goes, "No, I didn't. I wouldn't. I don't like those docs where they recreate things. So that's one thing I didn't want to do with this film. I didn't want to recreate anything. And I said, "You didn't want to recreate anything." And Goldthwait literally fell over, like you know, in a, in a in a roast. You know, like just we're sitting on the stage, just sitting directly on the stage, and then and he just dropped. It was great, but. We are such uh, old and dear friends, and 
you know, it turns out may, we may not even be done uh, collaborating on a couple of things. But that's, and that's an exclusive to you. That vague statement is as far as I'm willing to go. Awesome. Your proudest moment in show business. Uh, I'm uh, on stage in San Diego. And uh, uh, someone literally yells a line from my act because I mean because it, it was literally the same thing someone else said before. But I swear this person had been some grief otherwise, so it wasn't like they just did it naturally. It wasn't it wasn't any way someone trying to. Say, but this guy yells at me, "If you love this country, honey, get out of it." And I said, "Because I don't want to be victimized by its foreign policy." And the audience just, you know, it's just a big room, a U.S. Grant auditorium, and, and uh, just the laughter rolls back and then forward again and then back and then about halfway back down, everyone starts clapping. Then they stop clapping and they're laughing again. I mean, and it's just like, it's embarrassing, you know, how... I mean, I, so I kind of, I, honest to God, out of not false humility, just like, this is weird. And I look, and so I just kind of, turn, and I, I turn from the audience and I look over, and in the wings, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, Chris Christopherson, David Crosby, Graham Nash, Danny O'Keefe, and probably three other, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Famers I'm not mentioning, thinking, are just like, because they've dealt with this love it or leave it shit their whole lives too. So they then they see someone just respond to it, and then they see what the and when, and I get off the stage, and I mean by the time I'm walking over, they're all like, it's it's like a mural. It's like Mount Rushmore music is hanging out there, and and as I'm walking over, I consciously made myself remember it. You know, like, remember this, <laughs> you know, because like a lot, I, you can miss a lot of stuff. But this, I I got this. And I've always remembered it, seeing those people, particularly Christopherson beaming, because he's got, he's such a presence and such a wonderful person. And that's like, you know, I mean, not, and Jackson getting to be proud of me. Hey, here's the guy I found, you know, and they're all going like, whoa, you know, so it was cool. And, and musicians have just, done so much for me Start, first first one i work with a lot was Warren Zevon, and from then on it's just been it's been pretty cool your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career <laughs> well, to the next level well, oh man my biggest disappointment uh well i gotta tell you probably my biggest biggest disappointment was we started something that was pretty hip and, and kind of underground. We were like, the original comedy clubs were alternative, you know? Mm -hmm. And then when they kind of boiled it down to something that could be this corporate thing, you could sell shares and it was just, I just never dug the uh, the way they do comedy. They take it, often the least talented, certainly the least experienced person and that's who sets the tone for the show. And then somebody else and then maybe something. You know, and I did these shows where, like, like clearly this idiot on before me is trying to make it hard for me to follow them, and it's like it's not hard to do. Yeah, you can do that. You know, it's funny. Uh, you know, uh, Charlie Parker can't follow Metallica. You know, it doesn't mean Charlie Parker can't play the horn. It means you know it's tough to follow, to play a horn when everybody's deaf. So, uh, 
that would be my biggest disappointment that that comedy clubs weren't a little hipper. But I got, I got it. I got. I have a plan. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna go. I'm one last production thing before I'm done. Next, I've got a couple of things I got to do. But the next, like new open-ended idea I have, has to do with how comedy is presented and, and how everybody's involved in it. And I don't mean to knock the hosts of show or whatever, but I mean they often just ratchet that common denominator to the pit. And then, you know. Now we'd like to bring up a political satirist. They can't even say satirist. You know, he's a satirist. I'm going to come out and do a little satire for you. <clears throat> Last question. So what advice do you have for the young artist who's coming up and who might be from a small town in upstate uh, right, New York right. or somewhere who's been through some horrible tragedies in their life and how can they fuel their selves and their career to the next level based on what you always looked for in talent and what you saw in all these great people? What is it about those people that you think is the best words of wisdom to help you be that kind of person like you or like Stephen or like Paula right. or like Bob or like all these great, great people. Or like Barry. Or um, like Barry Crimmins. Cats. All right. Barry Cats. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a great artist. Uh, but you facilitate them. And that's a great art. Um, uh, well, if we just want to talk comedy... I would say learn your craft. Uh, comedy, learn your craft. The first thing you need to learn how to do is take the stage. I can't believe I see these guys do national TV shots and they come and go, how are you doing? Like, that's a rhetorical question to the nation. You know, you're not focusing them in. On it. Like, you just got introduced as a funny guy. Walk out and be funny. Bang! Take the stage. That's platinum that time when they first walk out there. If you're fun, I've always tried to have something very concise and funny, and often is as much to do with any, you know, like, oh, he can tell he's on the same, it's hot here too, you know, like you know something that relates to them, and you just bang, and you get them that way, and that's walking in, and that's some kind of sales technique of, you know, I mean, if you're a huge act, yeah, say hello Philadelphia, but otherwise you're some guy they never heard of. But they said you're really funny. Go out and be really funny. That's all. Do your job. You know, take the stage. But that's platinum. And you get so much credit for that up front. You, you feel it accruing with an audience, you know. Like, okay, that's why I, I, I've always been able to, you know, kind of like, now I'm giving a speech and you people are putting up with it, you know, because I was funny for a long time. Uh, so that's that. As far as, you know, they... They try to tell you you can do anything you want to do. What they don't want you to know is that's the truth. You know. The people that are doing the most amazing things I know didn't take no for an answer. If you can be talked out of it, then you shouldn't do it. But if you can't, you know, stay on it and whatever, you know. Look at you. Play it against Sam's. To, you know, come on, man. You're the the best I mean you're the best example of that you just had an idea and you put it together you realized the deal and you made it happen that's uh, you know that's inspirational there's people I deal with whose parents dropped the ball and I actually talk to the parents and they feel bad about it, but they missed things you know so 
Uh, and then to think, you know, you and I are just like the two berries. <laughs> <laughs> just like, you know, like, yeah, like the Patty Duke show. You can't, you know, it just has to mean an awful lot to you. But uh, really understand, you know, on a certain conscious level, you're not that interesting, but what you've got to offer is interesting. What you really have is interesting. But it's not like we sort of live in an era where people can broadcast the fact that they're putting their shoes on, you know, and it's sort of like, wow, you put shoes on and you're putting on your feet. That's amazing, you know. But if you really got something to say, the interesting thing is everybody thinks that what you have to say is planned in advance. The trick is, is getting yourself to the point where, you know, you're just using the audience or whatever it is, is you know, like, I don't have to have a therapist. I get to do this here. But you don't know what you're going to say or what you're going to do, really, if you're really an artist, until it's like you're on the spot and you got to come up with it, you know? So I would say put yourself on the spot. And and if you quit, that's your choice. And I understand because it's a really stupid you know, I mean, you you know how what the percentages of people who filter through, like, you know, I'm like a relative pauper, but I've got to people go, oh, you're so successful lately, and they go, I've been doing what I want every day since I was 18 years old. Like, are you kidding me? I, I thought that was successful. I didn't have to answer to some shithead and sit in a cubicle and and get some middle manager bully pushing me around that I see him pushing somebody else around and I end up getting arrested for choking him or something. So I'm very lucky, you know. Uh, but you can do anything you want. You can if you got the guts to do it. And the, and and then the fall through to continue to do it. And that's what you've done. You know, you're so, like... You're one of my, you're on that list of people like, there's friends, or people I know from a long time ago It's just like, you know, he's so successful. If I track him down, I'll think I'm looking for something. <laughs> and I wasn't. I always wanted to go, tremendous. You did that. Like, and again and again, your name would turn up like, holy crap. And then people are going like, hey, uh, then people try, when people try to get to you through me, I would go, no, I never talked to me, but, and, but I would be thinking, I wish I was talking to him. But, you know, and I probably could get a hold of him for this clown, but I'm not going to. <laughs> because, you know, I, but that's how I, I find, part of how I realized the magnitude to which you had uh, uh, elevated yourself. And it's because you did so much to help other, I mean, like you've been a major contributor to the American comedy scene. And I thank you. And I don't know why sometimes you're left out of some of the Boston stories because I'll tell you what I say. They, you should talk to the cats, you know, because that's a whole other angle. I didn't know what the deal was. I like to go over and play your club sometimes, you know, I'm always happy to. If you're getting to the next level, if you're getting to the alleged next level, you're sort of not noticing it and because the next level is higher and busier and so you're just busy doing dealing with all this stuff. Like I'm, I'm as man. I've never been so busy. So I must be doing okay. But uh, I I wish I were this busy 20 years ago. And I wish I 
but it is what it is. You got to show up when they ask you. And so they're asking and uh, call me lucky. There you go. Very. Thank you very much for having me on your, your podcast. Uh, it's terrific to see you. Now we're in touch again. Now I can call you up and you'll know I'm not going to be like, you know, asking you to co-sign a loan. You can always call me. I just want to share this with you. I never think of myself as successful. I think you're successful. I think to myself, my God, the guy's been doing this for 30 some odd years. He's going to Lawrence, Kansas to a performance center and selling it out and getting standing ovations and encores and doing two and a half hours. And meanwhile, I'm sitting in a Hyatt hotel room on a worn out blue chair oh. <laughs> doing interviews that I'm hoping will help people. So believe me, you're incredibly successful. I'm so grateful yeah, you came yeah. here and shared your story. Thank you. And thank you so much. And we will be in touch. Love you, brother. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on PGLBO, February 28th, 2018. Heading reads, I love this podcast, exclamation point, five stars. Nice. It reads, I recently listened to the Pauly Shore interview. It was great getting an update on Pauly Shore, along with learning about his background growing up in the business. Thank you, exclamation point, Lorraine Borner. Congratulations, Lorraine. Thank you so much. You are a winner. Lastly, I'd like to thank our sponsors, AquaTrue. Again, go to industrystandardwater.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get $100 off and get the best tasting water you can ever imagine. And I Killed JFK, the documentary in the interviews about the only man in history to admit to killing JFK. The documentary is incredible. You love it. The interviews are insane with the last remaining living experts. Check it out, ikilledjfk.com. And the air doctor, removing dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and everything bad in your home air and you can save $300 right now go to airdoctorpro.com enter the promo code Barry that's airdoctorpro.com enter the promo code Barry and start breathing in clean and healthy air today and lastly my thanks to Wondery check out all the best podcasts in the world there at wondery.com thanks a lot everybody I've really enjoyed today. See you next time. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain There's 
never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.